Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast, the show where in 2021, I'm bringing you interviews with some of the world's most ambitious and progressive pharma company owners, uh, industry leaders, suppliers, innovators, who have all agreed to share their stories of personal and professional growth. Uh, this week, I'm joined by Scott Stout. Uh, Scott is the CEO at Medvector. Uh, and when I first heard what these guys were doing, uh, it kind of blew my mind. Um, so Scott, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you. And before we get into exactly what you guys do, uh, because you have a knack of almost explaining things in a way that is very simple. And that's one of the things I, I love about yourself. Um, let's just kind of rewind a little bit first as to how you got into uh, the kind of the pharma healthcare industry and hear a little bit more on I guess your background and, and your younger years effectively. Um, sure so all right so that's you know a big starting block <laughs> starting from the younger years yeah uh, you know a point that you touched on is being able to explain things simply mm. and that's it seems to be a challenge for a lot of people uh, including myself. So it takes, a, you know, a lot of effort and a lot of understanding of what is it you're trying to say and then trying to, and then saying it multiple times mm. uh, and you figure out what works and what doesn't work. And something that we like to say around here is simplicity is the ultimate complication, meaning that the easier you get things to be, the harder it is to get down to that level. And so, Definitely. you know, taking a taking a complex topic, you know, like clinical trials, which is what mm -hmm. we're going to talk about today, and <clears throat> really being able to explain, you know, how they work, where the problems are, and how we solve them in a, in a very simple terms uh, is, is challenging. Um, and, you know, in, in the types of models and, and, and business strategies that, that we're dealing with when we're talking about, you know, dual-sided marketplaces, um, the the perspective of the business changes depending on the angle that you're looking at. So, you know, it's a different conversation to have with investors. Mm -hmm. It's a different conversation to have with pharma and CROs. It's a different conversation to have with doctors. And not only is it a different conversation, but it's a different perspective altogether. Yeah. And so yeah. Th those are the challenges that we continue to have day to day. So thank you for the compliment for mm. starting off. No, it's, look, it's, it's a big thing. I mean, as you know, look, we're, we're a recruitment business and, you know, we're speaking to uh, people in clinical trials all the time. We're not necessarily science experts ourselves. Um, so sometimes I almost have to explain that, that just know your audience. As a recruiter, we're here to facilitate and, and almost represent you to put you in front of the client. Once you're speaking to the hiring manager and the technical expert at their end, look, you can go as nerdy as you like, as geek as you like on the science side of things, but half of it will blow my mind. I need to know facts, figures, et cetera, et cetera. So look, um, I think that's one of the things that, yeah, I liked when, when you and I first spoke is that you knew your audience. And I guess to, to an extent, I was very easy to admit or very quick to admit, should I say, that I was a little bit ignorant to the fact that of, of knowing what you guys did and you explained it within a couple of minutes um, so that I could, um, yeah, un understand exactly what you did. Uh, and I didn't quite know the, the, the business model when I said it sounds something along the lines of Amazon, but we'll come on to that and, and, and we'll get there. What, what, yeah, what it, what it is like. Um, so look, uh, I guess, you know, in terms of your, your younger years and, and how you got into to entrepreneurship, because um, you guys have been at Medvex, so you've been going a few years now. Um, 
what prompted you to start with to say, look, this is, you know, a business that I think I can, I can grow, I can, you know, um, rate, raise revenue to, to launch, etc. Where did the, the I, I guess, the idea come from? And what background do you think that you had that put you in a position to, to actually yeah, make that jump that so many people just don't? Well, so, you know, that's a, that's a good uh, lead in, make that jump. Mm. So, you know, in, uh, in my younger years in, in high school, um, I was, you know, an, an athletic guy, a competitive guy. Um, wasn't a great student, but I competed with the good ones. Um, you know, so I was in honors classes. Um, I was a second-rate quarterback for the, you know, high school football team. And uh, actually, one of my claim to fame is uh, I got to play against Tom Brady. Uh, I was the other quarterback who lost, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that was kind of a, you know, fun claim to fame um, mm. back then. But, you know, I was always drawn to the risk-taking sports, you know, so the, the rock climbing, the uh, skiing and snowboarding. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I was jumping over cars with my rollerblades uh, and, you know, skating half pipes and, and doing all that stuff. So when you say jump into it, you know, that was a big part of, of my uh, upbringing. Mm. And so, you know, uh, I did okay in high school. You know, like I said, I was in honors classes and competed with the good students, but I, w- I would never call myself, a, you know, a, gr- a good or great student. Um, went to the University of Arizona uh, in mm-hmm. Tucson and uh, because I loved golf and, uh, you know, just to be honest, and uh, so, so a little bit uh, one extreme to the other there from yeah and, and so yeah so uh, I, it turned out I was a I was a very good golfer um, almost made it onto the Arizona's golf team which is like a top three uh, uh, oh, wow. golf team yeah uh, I have some some interesting story, golf stories that I'll that I'd be happy to share with you on the golf course sometimes yeah uh, one of them is uh, Bo Jackson still owes me twenty bucks from really? a, a golf bet and he's and he stiffed me. Uh, so yeah, Bo still owes me. Uh, if we can get him on the then, show, you know, I, we'll chase that debt for you. Yeah, right. I'd love to, I'd love to be interviewed sometime and be able, you know get Bo on the show and be like, hey, remember <laughs> me? <laughs> uh, and then so you know, I, I graduated from the, the business school out of Arizona uh, with a with a marketing degree and an emphasis in advertising, and I had very prestigious internships because I was a competitive guy, mm-hmm. uh, and I was able to speak well on my feet. And so, you know, I worked for uh, Palm Inc., which is the handheld Palm Pilot company. Uh-huh. Uh, one summer I worked for Logitech one summer, and then another summer I worked for a company called Young and Rubicam, which mm-hmm. is a major advertising agency. And my clients were Chevron and the Oakland Raiders. So those were fun clients to, to be nice. working with. Yeah. Um, and then so after all of that, you know, prestigious education and all that, I graduated and I became a bartender. <laughs> In, in Santa Monica, California. So, you know, Southern California here by Los Angeles. Yeah. How did and that, that was, go down you know, with, with, with your, your parents at the time after kind of, yeah, having clients like Chevron and... Yeah, and, you know, it was, it was just a, an interesting turn of events. And, you know, actually, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything, you know. Mm. Uh, and, you know, while, you know, people kind of look down at bartending as a non-professional, uh, you know, endeavor, it teaches you how to think quickly on your feet, teaches you how to, you know, you know, genuinely listen to people. Mm-hmm. Um, it teaches you um, how to work fast, how to be profitable, both for yourself and for the bar. And so, you know, there's a lot of social elements that go along with it. And I think that it was, you know, as good an experience as college, to be honest. Mm. And um, <clears throat> so fast forward a decade, I found myself in finance. 
Um, and so I was working in wealth management. Um, I was an option strategist for a couple of the larger firms, including Morgan Stanley. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was recruited over to Wells Fargo's private bank to be part of a large wealth management team. Yeah. And so uh, to get to that level of wealth, so we're talking about the ultra high net worth clientele, you know, so, mm-hmm. so you know, we had a, you know, 10, $10 million minimum um, uh, of just assets held with us. So to wow. get to that level, typically we're not dealing with employees. You know, typically we're dealing with business owners. Mm-hmm. So we made it our, our business to understand our client's business as best as we could. And so we, we took the time to make introductions and further our client's businesses because after all, the better they did, the better we did. And yeah. so we had uh, two clients that we were introducing and it was, uh, these were my clients. So it was my re- responsibility to introduce them. Mm-hmm. And one of them was a private equity company that bought hospitals and the other was a data analytics company used for hospital turnarounds. Mm-hmm. And so this is a no brainer to introduce these two guys. And so we scheduled a meeting and, and just chatted with them uh, looking for you know, additional revenue streams and potential partnerships between the two of them. And randomly we started talking about clinical trials. And I asked the private equity company, I said, why don't your hospitals do clinical trials? Mm. And Quite frankly, he said, well, we recognize that they're potentially profitable, but we don't know how. Um, we've got a model that works, so we stick with our model. And there's a lot of you know, unknown expenses that would be associated with us starting uh, a new revenue stream like that. And we, mm. we don't have any connections with pharma. We don't know what drugs are in the pipeline. We don't know what doctors we would have to hire. Um, we don't even know if we have the right patients that they're looking for for these clinical trials. Yeah. That was when I uh, asked one of the dumber questions of my career. Um, now, remember, I was the analyst in the room, right? I was the option strategist and the analyst and the professional investor. And I said, well, why don't you refer your patients to the other hospitals in Los Angeles for the referral fee? Mm. And the room got real quiet and he looked at me squarely and he said, because I don't want my customers walking into another hospital. And I was like, <laughs> oh, oh, right, duh. Patients are customers in this world. Yeah, and so it was the dumbest question that, that came out of my mouth, and fortunately, my 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 bartending experience helped me think quickly on my feet. So very quickly, I was like, um, "What if we found a turnkey company that landed their people in your hospital, used your patients, did some sort of profit sharing, and then when it was over, they up and leave?" And he mm-hmm. thinks about it for a second. He goes, "Go find me that." And so we went looking for that, and it turns out that that doesn't exist. So we took the concept a step further and said, "Well," why would we need to land boots on the ground at all? Why couldn't we use telemedicine? And Mm -hmm. so everybody's very familiar with what telemedicine is today, but three years ago, this was still kind of a new concept. Yeah. And just to, you know, give you the soundbite of what telemedicine is, is it's encrypted video conferencing. That's it. That's all telemedicine is. So you can't technically have a, a doctor's appointment via FaceTime because it's not encrypted to the same level as telemedicine for HIPAA yeah. privacy laws and, and things mm-hmm. like that. So, so we said, well, why, why couldn't we use telemedicine to connect patients in your hospital to existing clinical trial sites outside of your hospital? And the idea was sound, so we started researching it. Um, and the more we researched, the more benefits we found coming from it. And mm. it was starting to look like a really interesting idea. So. We scheduled a, a, a second meeting with another executive of a telemedicine provider. And we asked them, we, we said, 
you know, so it was the same group. So it was the private equity guy. It was a, the CEO of a telemedicine company and then yeah. the data analytics guy. Mm-hmm. And I asked the telemedicine provider, I said, you know, who are you using for clinical trials? We'd like an introduction. And he, he looked at me and said, nobody. And we've been looking for two years. And so that was at that moment in that meeting, I raised my hand mm-hmm. and I said, if I do it, do I have the support of everybody in the room? And we went around the table and I ended up getting a lead investor from the private equity company. I got a two-year exclusive on the spot from the telemedicine provider. Yeah. I got a co-founder out of the data analytics company. And that's how MedVector was born. Out of interest, what were you, I guess, what was going through your mind when, again, it's kind of goes back to that taking the, the, the leap or the jump sort of situation where you said, you know, what, what if I could do this? And then you kind of got that back in from your peers in, in a room. What was sure, going so, through your, your mind at that time? Because I think, you know, often so, you know, so many people in life reach a point where they may be in the right place at the right time, but they don't necessarily know it. Um, so I'm just interested to know what was going through your head, whether you did know it or whether you were kind of shitting yourself inside or yeah, what, what was going on? So, so I, have, I have three boys, okay? So I have three uh, young boys and they can answer this question probably as good as anyone mm. because I hammer it into their head. And I say, you always want to swim downstream with your head up. And so this is a survival skill in general that I believe works in life. So if you're trying to cross a river, right? And you need to go from point A to point B, mm-hmm. you can't go straight across, right? Because the current is pulling you downstream. So you have to actually start upstream and swim downstream to where you're trying to go. And that is the most effective way to cross a river. Mm-hmm. If you try to swim upstream, you drown. So a lot of people fight the current, right? And, and so there's, there's different ways of, of saying this. One of them is go with God, right? Mm-hmm. So stop fighting God, go with what the path and, and, and where the path is leading you. And so to me, it's all about following that path, but always keeping your head up, looking for opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a professional investor, when you identify a large gap in a marketplace, you find a way to invest in that. Yeah. Because this, is, this is a hole that can Fantastic. easily be built. Mm. Right. And so you know, this was one of those moments as a professional investor where we identified a very large gap. We went looking for a company to fill that gap. And then we realized that the gap was really big and that there wasn't anybody doing it. Mm-hmm. So the investment opportunity was to invest in this company. And the only way that we could invest in this company was to do it. Wow. Cool. That was, um, as you say, look, a quick decision and yeah, kind of just amazing that you 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 came up with it at that point and then managed to, to kind of get the backing almost instantly from from those in in the room um so at that point the idea for for med vector um was, was born what where did you go from 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 there well so uh, my co-founder will tell you it was all very serendipitous so meaning we just continued to swim downstream and and with our heads up and and people kept handing us branches Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of those moments was uh, when we were doing some research and every day, I mean, I was excited about this. And so every day, probably half of my day was dedicated to, you know, doing research and furthering the, the concept. And every article I clicked on, I was terrified that I was going to find the company that was doing it. Yeah. Uh, and so while we we're doing this research and, and every time Dennis, my co-founder, called me, 
I was expecting this. We found the company that's doing it and this is who we're going to work with. Yeah. Never happened. And so after six months of this, this type of, you know, rigorous research, I found an article written by our attorney now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, her name is Lisa Mazur. She's with McDermott, Will and Emery out of Chicago. Uh-huh. And she wrote an article essentially saying, why is nobody using telemedicine for clinical trials? And that's right. like our whole thing. Yeah. So I, fortunately, you know, because she's, she's an attorney and she's using the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the media to try and gain clients. She had her mm. contact information listed on the end of the article. So I reached out to her directly and essentially she said, oh my God, I love it. We want to be your lawyers. And I said, nice. well, you don't have any money. And she said, well, you're going to raise capital. So the business plan is, is right. And I can, I can vouch for it, mm. uh, which, which was a big step for us in, you know, raising our first round of capital, having the support of McDermott, Will and Emery, which is yeah. probably yeah. the largest healthcare attorney firm uh, in the world. Um, in fact, when we're negotiating with Novartis, we end up having the same attorney. And so this huge company that is Novartis and we're this tiny startup and we have the same company. And then all of a sudden we've got a conflict and, you know, both parties have to agree to that. It's okay that we're using the same attorney. So yeah. we've got this huge attorney that is giving us this, you know, you're on the right track. Again, that must have, that must have felt pretty amazing, right? When you kind it of did. That, and that pat on the back, you know, sign of recognition and almost just reinforcing what, what you were doing was, was kind of a great mission at that yep. point. And so what I did is I, I, I essentially, you know, negotiated with Lisa. I said, look, help us out now. And when we raise capital, I'll give you a $25,000 retainer. Mm-hmm. In exchange for that $25,000 retainer, I want startup pricing and I want a $250,000 credit line. Mm-hmm. So meaning that if we had to go all the way to the FDA or things like that, we could spin up our bill up to 250K uh-huh. to get to the next point where we could raise capital again. And so she did a, a, a background check on both myself and I came out, you know, squeaky clean being a financial advisor. Mm. Um, and then also on Dennis, my, my partner. And Dennis was one of the original founders of a company called Wellspring uh, Partners. And so Wellspring had a major exit, um, which is why Dennis was one of my clients. Uh, and so McDermott had done the exit for Dennis's company. So he came back not only squeaky clean, but a shining star being like, mm. look, we've already made money off this guy. And again, it kind it's of a no-brainer for us to work with. together well by the sounds of things, in, you know, just in terms of all these dots just connecting. It was, it, we were swimming downstream. It was all very serendipitous. Yep. Sure. So look, I guess um, look, the setup sounds like it, it went probably better than, than you even expected in, in that sense with you it know, did. all of these coming um, into line all at once. So look, I know that you've got um, some amazing explainer videos on, on YouTube and um, sort of links that you can perhaps send out to anyone um, sort of tuning in who wants to hear more. But now give us, give me a bit of an, an insight as to how your, I don't know how you, you class it, whether you class it as a product, a service, a platform, just to explain exactly, I guess, what MedVector is, does, and perhaps how, it's, how it is different from, say, well, let, let, me, let me start with the problem. That, that not a lot of people are, are aware of. Mm-hmm. So um, the average time for a new medicine to go through their clinical trials, right? So there's, there's three stages of clinical trials and most people have heard this in movies. Like it's about to have 
phase three FDA approval. Yeah. And so these are, are very real terms that, that we hear about in movies, but a new medicine has to go through three phases of clinical trials before they're given FDA approval. That once they have FDA approval, they're allowed to market and sell their medication. Mm-hmm. But before they have FDA approval, they can't even market it. So it's a bit of a catch-22 in the industry when let's say you have a cure for blindness, right? HIPAA privacy laws prevent you from buying a list of people who are blind. Mm. So how do you find the blind people to test your medication to make sure that it works? Now, this is far past the guinea pig stage, right? So it's already been through preclinical trials and all that. So we know that there's potentially efficacy of the drug. And, you know, people who are blind would a lot of times would love to know that there is a potential medicine that's worth trying out there, right? Of course, yeah. But the education just isn't there. And to make problems worse, you know, if, you're, if we're talking about blind people, you can't put up billboards mm. to get them to call a number, right? So it's, it's very much you have to reach out to their doctors. And, you know, as far as that goes, you know, you and I have talked about this before, but, you know, like, when was the last time you dialed the number off of a billboard? And the answer that I get from 99% of the people is never, you know, and so that's how current patient recruitment works. There's, there's some cleverness out there on top of that. So I'm not trying to insult any patient recruitment companies out there, Mm. Um, but it's just, it's very difficult to find enough patients to facilitate these three stages of clinical trials in order to get an FDA approval. So the big problem is while the study itself might only take six to 12 months, finding enough people to complete all three phases takes an average of 10 years, which is mind blowing. It's, it's, it's crazy. I, I, I know when I first got into the industry, I was yeah kind of mind blown by that, by that scenario. And yeah. just when you think about just a drug that could be in existence, but it's not gonna get to market, just because of these holdups, it's, it's crazy. Yep. And, you know, uh, the, the other interesting part and in the catch 22 in the industry is the medical patent. So a medical patent is a 20 year patent. Mm-hmm. So it's a 20 year patent. Average time is 10 years. That means you burn through half of your patent, just getting the market, just, just getting to the point where you could begin to sell mm-hmm. it. And so, you can imagine how motivated these pharmaceutical companies are to accelerating this timeline, right? So these numbers are really big. So just to give you an example, uh, a medication uh, called Humira, which a lot of people have seen uh, commercials for, um, it is uh, currently the number one selling medication in the world. And right now their patent is worth $1.6 billion a month, a month. So when you talk about accelerating that clinical trial by just a month, is it worthwhile for them to throw an extra $100 million at it? Yeah. But when we're talking about accelerating it years, which is essentially what we're doing, um, they become very motivated uh, to, to get these to market faster. Now, what this means to the public, right? So this is basic economic theory. Um, and uh, a lot of people uh, just put pharma in the category of pharma is going to make as much money as they can because they're a, a for-profit business. They're right. They're absolutely right. Pharma is a for-profit, for-profit business, and they're going to make as much money as they can. However, economic theory says that if you extend the length of time that a company can make money on a product, they can lower the price mm. and capture a 
a larger segment of the market and in the end become more profitable by yeah. having a lower price. And so that's the really interesting thing about what we're trying to accomplish is by accelerating these clinical trials, yes, pharma becomes more profitable, but the medication prices come down also. Kind of a win-win in, in, in that sense, isn't it really? It really is, yep. So what we do in its most basic form is we have a piece of hardware that we can send to unapproved locations or non-participating doctors to include those patients for clinical trials that could be anywhere in the world. So we're using telemedicine to expand the reach of existing clinical trial sites to eliminate the geographic tethers, to eliminate the uh, socioeconomic barriers that exist in uh, being able to participate in a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. um, it's, we're helping with the diversity of clinical trials, uh, you know, making uh, advanced medicine available to inner city hospitals now. And it's, it's all very simple in its most basic form in that we're using telemedicine. We, we ship a, a, a physical device behind the private practice that the patient exists and it allows that patient to participate from their home physician's office rather than having to drive or move to be close to this clinical trial site. So patient recruitment companies and CROs, they're able to identify a lot more patients than they're able to enroll in their studies. And a lot of that is because they're too far away. Mm -hmm. They're trapped behind a doctor that isn't participating. Um, they're trapped behind a specialist who is interested in participating, but they weren't approved to participate. And these doctors simply don't refer away. And so our device is eliminating that bottleneck by allowing them to reach 100% of the identified uh, subject candidates that, that are out there. Mm -hmm. So the COVID component of all of this, um, in the very beginning, it hit us very hard. Um, so we actually had uh, a, a large investor uh, whose fund froze mm -hmm. the week they were supposed to write us a big check. Wow. Uh, and so we, we scrambled for a bit to try to figure out what we we're going to do. And it, it seemed that, you know, everybody's fund was freezing because nobody knew what was going to happen with Corona, how long everything was going to be closed. Yeah. <clears throat> so there was so much unknown out there and investors don't like unknown. So they That's just, just, just freeze. So something really interested, interesting happened during uh, the COVID-19 and it was the adaptation and the acceptance of telemedicine. So telemedicine is a large component of our business. Mm. And initially we were getting a knee jerk reaction from some doctors that, that weren't taking the time to understand exactly what it is that we were doing. Um, and they were saying, no, no, no that, that wouldn't work. And what they mean is that's not how it's currently done. Mm. And so our, our device and our, um, our technology in, in general. So we're not selling a device, this is a service. So our device is similar to Uber's app, right? It's something that's free, that's you internally. And, but there was this pushback about telemedicine, especially from clinicians and doctors saying, you can't do that. I, I have to see my patient in order to treat them or in order to observe them or in order to do anything. And then, so when COVID happened and doctors couldn't see people physically, they, got, they jumped on board with the telemedicine concept because they recognized that, well, what did you actually need the patient there physically 
Mm-hmm. And they would say, well, we would have, we, we need to draw blood. We need to do a physical. We need to do height and weight. We need to do all this stuff. And, and, and what, what they realize now is you can ask a patient how much they weigh and it goes in the chart. You can go to a, you know, a third party lab corp place to get your blood drawn. And as long as the doctor is seeing the results of those labs, he or she essentially can treat you. Mm. And that is kind of what has happened with telemedicine. And so everybody's kind of waking up to the idea of, you know what, the last time I was at the doctor, the only time the doctor touched me was to shake my hand. Yeah. Now we don't even do that, right? Because of mm. COVID. So, so the telemedicine, you know, uh, piece of this whole thing is, is really uh, caught on to where doctors are actually kind of pushing for it. Mm. They're, kind of, they're kind of doing our job for us a little bit. It's a bit of a, so, a double-edged sword fit for you guys then certainly initially with the funding side of things bit of a nightmare but then the acceptance of of the the business model that you're uh, proposing is now much more widely accepted and probably sought after by a lot of the physicians out there so that they can continue to to do their business Mm -hmm. amazing so look, yeah, I think that's where I think initially I had said, oh, it sounds like kind of the, the Amazon app, but yeah, you've kind of um, then put me correct with the the, the, the Uber analogy, yeah. analogy. and um, look, I think it's, it's almost a cliche when people talk about these things these days, but I think it's, it's, it's spot on. And when I, when I heard it, I was just like, it's, it's just bloody amazing uh, how you've it, come it up is with really... this idea off the back of what was by your own admission, a, a ridiculous question but then you've, you know, that identified the problem. And then one thing has just literally led to the next, led to the next, to the, to the next, hasn't it? It's- yep. And so, so uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you the Uber analogy quickly. Mm. And, and I agree, I hate it uh, because it's so cliche, especially in the startup world, we're the Uber of X. Everybody thinks that they're the Uber Everyone, of X. Everyone's Uber. <laughs> but, the, but the good thing about Uber is people understand what Uber is. So mm. it's a decent placeholder. And so the reason it works for us is if you look at the Uber model, what is Uber doing? Uber is finding people that need rides and connecting them to people who already have cars, who already have cars, right? And to do that, they're using the Uber app. The Uber app is free, right? So just the same way as our device is free. Mm. So Uber is not in the business of buying cars, of maintaining cars, of running cars, or even driving, right? So the, the, that's all the responsibility of the driver. They're simply connecting that dot between the passenger and the person who already owns a car. Mm. So at MedVector, we're doing the exact same thing. We're finding people who are interested in participating in clinical trials mm. and connecting them to existing clinical trial sites. So again, we're not hiring doctors, we're not running studies, and we're not um, trying to build sites. We're yep. simply finding these patients and connecting them using telemedicine to existing clinical trial sites. And that is how we are very similar to Uber. Yeah, no, it's, uh, as I said, look, when you first told me about it, I was kind of mind blown. Uh, and I just think it's such an amazing idea. Um, and I'm sure that things are gonna massively take off for yourself over kind of the years ahead. Um, but look, without um, sort of going too much into the future just yet, um, Look, along the way, there's always challenges um, with any of these things. You know, there's been a few things where kind of it's probably gone better than than what you expected. Um, But there must be, I guess, 
other challenges aside from from, from COVID and, and things that perhaps or just things that you've learned about yourself along the way I guess one of the things that you've I guess already covered is the fact that bartendering is great for thinking on your feet um, and you perhaps you know need to speak to the, the old bar to, uh, the bar owner just say thank you very much now <laughs> you know you've almost created this idea um, but look what else have you learned about yourself on a personal level having to go for all of this working from home and, and things like that over the past 12 months you mean as far as starting the business or, or is this a COVID question uh, in terms of the entrepreneurial side of things, so starting the business and uh, managing working from, from home, facilitating things remotely, um, yeah, on, on that level, I would say. Uh, well, you know, I, there, as far as like being a startup person, I've, I've helped several startups, uh, you know, kind of figure out their, their business models. Um, mm -hmm. And there's, there's been a couple where, you know, they have this huge suite of offerings and they'll be presenting all of these offerings to me and I'll go, whoa, whoa, whoa go, go back one. Mm -hmm. And then we'll realize that we can carve out an entire company off of one of these small slivers of all of their offerings. And they're actually currently doing that now and, and, and creating a, a successful company. Yeah. And so, um, this is something that I've learned about myself and also probably advice that I would give to anybody else that is in startup world. Mm -hmm. And it's what I call getting lost in feature land and getting lost in feature land is, is a type of creative thinking that is very necessary at a established corporate level. So, and by established corporate level, I'm referring to the large established companies that are already generating prof profits and they need to continually reinvent themselves. So this feature land component is hammered into most of our brains. And let's remember that most of us come into startups after working at corporate USA. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so you know, the, the, most of us come from corporate USA or, co or corporate or wherever, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're trained to think in this innovative way. And, 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 and a lot of us hate doing it in these kind of corporate brainstorming meetings where it's like, all right, who's got an idea? But yeah. we're, but it's ingrained into us that it's necessary. And so this mentality, when you bring it into the startup world, kills a startup because you haven't established your core uh, comp competencies yet. Mm -hmm. And so if you're, for example, if, if you've got an app, right? That uses your camera, uh, the, the camera in your phone. Yeah instantly appraise a baseball card. Sounds like a cool idea, right? Mm -hmm. So so you might be able to get funding for that. And, and some of the, the revenue features down the road might be people might want to buy or sell these cards that you've instantly appraised. You know, there might be a social media component of look at the card that I have that you don't, neener, neener, neener. Yeah. There might even be another revenue platform that says, um, let's incorporate retired baseball players to sign their cards to make the cards more valuable and the users would pay the players. So now this is a potential revenue stream for, for players. Mm. So all of these are great ideas, but all of them fall on their face without the camera phone app working. Yeah. And so when you get lost in this feature land area, it ends up being a huge waste of resources because, because in startup land, all we have is time 
and money, and they go very quickly. And so getting lost in future land will kill a startup. Yeah. So your, your advice, I guess, essentially is kind of keep it simple, stick to your core competency and, and stick to your own, I guess, core values as to what don't, you're looking don't to Don't get lost about. in what it could be. Mm. Make sure you build what it is first. Perfect. Well, look, um, I, I guess, you know, that's your advice for anyone kind of aspiring to get into to entrepreneurship. Look, it's, it can be a difficult game. Uh, I take my hats off to anyone who has sort of taken that jump, as, as we said earlier. Um, but look, what are the plans for you guys at, at Medvector um, over the next sort of year and, and the predictions on, you know, in terms of for the, for the world of, of pharma? What are you what are you seeing? And um, I guess as a side note to that, you know, what are you looking to get getting back to when restrictions are, are released a little bit i'm i just can't wait to get a haircut um <laughs> but um yeah what's what's what 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 are you guys going to be up to what's what's the world of pharma going to be up to and, and what are you going to get up to outside of work kind of a, a three-part question for you there sure um so you know like personally what am i looking forward to i'm I, i'm looking forward to just you know the world opening up again um mm. being able to have uh dinner inside without a coat on uh, without wind, you know, blowing up my back. Uh, that that sounds great. Fortunately for me, I live in Los Angeles, where it's, you know, bright and sunny most of the time. To where you know we can tough it out better than, than Texas at the moment. Uh, but but you know it's still uh, a challenge. And you know I've I've got friends that I haven't seen in over a year. You know because they've got you know health concerns. So getting back to that social normal, I think, is the the piece that I'm looking the most forward to. Yeah. Um, as far as, you know, Medvector's uh, plans moving forward in, you know, post-COVID world, um, I don't know if we stay a remote business or if we, you know, get uh, an office somewhere or even where that office will be. Um, you know, potentially we end up in Texas, which is, you know, more middle of the country mm. for us rather than being in California. Um, so all of that is still very much unknown. And, and for me, for us right now, it's all about staying focused in where we are, creating our core product, which we have done. Um, and you know, right now it's all about the launch and the struggles that we have with our launch is because we're the, the first company to be, to be doing this and the yeah. only company doing it. There are, we get, we get um, unfairly thrown in the wrong bucket a lot. So, you know, uh, a lot of companies will look at us quickly and think that we're a patient recruitment company, which mm -hmm. um, other companies will look at us and think that we're a CRO, which we're not, I and mean, we're not yeah. trying to, we're not trying to run studies. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a similar frustration for us because doctors are these gatekeepers of everything healthcare. So if you back to the Uber analogy, mm. you can imagine that taxi drivers were the gatekeepers for everything financial for Uber, Uber would have never made it. Yeah. You ask a taxi driver, if you think Uber is a good idea, they're gonna say, no, this is awful. Who's gonna to wanna to get into a random person's car? There's no security, there's no license. You know, they're like, they're nobody, nobody's ever gonna to wanna to do that. Well, yeah. turns out Uber was right and taxi drivers were wrong. Mm. But fortunately for, for Uber, taxi drivers weren't the gatekeepers. So for us, you know, going back to COVID, you know, having doctors forced through the telemedicine components uh, has been a blessing in disguise. Mm. And so, you know, our company moving forward right now, we're, we're looking for pharma contracts uh, and uh, trying to, you know, clarify as concisely as possible 
our message so we don't get thrown in the wrong bucket. Yeah. Perfect. Well, look, I think that gives us a very good kind of wrap up there. I, I know that you guys have got, as I say, said earlier, some amazing um, explainer videos on, on YouTube. So I'll make sure that I, I share the links uh, for those. Um, but also, look, for anyone listening in uh, or, or watching on, on YouTube who wants to perhaps reach out to yourself, whether it's reinvestment, just hearing a bit more, um, office space if you know when that when that comes back online um, effectively you know what's the best way to, to reach out to to you team uh, is it your website what's what's the best way to get hold of you scott um you know all of the above work um you know right now we're currently raising capital uh on a platform called start engine mm-hmm. um there's there's a few hundred thousand dollars uh still remaining on that um but it's going very quickly so i don't know when this is released but uh you know one of the places that you can check and and uh, feel free to you know list this link uh, with the article as well. But it, it is uh, www.startengine.com forward slash medvector. And medvector is M-E-D-V-E-C-T-O-R. Perfect. Well, I'll, I'll list all of all of the links. Um, but look, it's been, as I say, fantastic having you on the show, hearing both the, the personal and, and professional elements of, of your story. Um, and yeah, I'm interested to see how you guys do go. So I'll certainly be sort of checking in in future and Please just to do. say, look, hey, how's it, how's it going? And, and I'm envisaging that it's going to be a very promising road for you. Your lips to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Well, look, Scott, thanks again uh, for coming on the Huxley Morton podcast and do keep in touch. Sounds good. All right. Cheers. Cheers.